Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Hello, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hey. Hey, Evan. Hello. Hello. Hello, Aaron. Welcome back to the show after one week away somewhere. It's good to see you. Not sure where I was last week. <laughs> Definitely somewhere important, though. <laughs> How can one even remember where, where they were last week? What is time? We're focused on the now. Yeah. Who is on the show right here, right now, this week? Right here, right now, is Hannah Georges, who is a staff writer at The Atlantic. She is the author of the cover story in the most recent issue of The Atlantic. The headline of that story on the web is, Most Hollywood Writers' Rooms Look Nothing Like America. The headline in print was The Unwritten Rules of Black TV. And the article is this big, sweeping look at the history of writers rooms on black tv shows starting decades and decades ago then running through the 90s up till today and how streaming is impacting those dynamics it's one of those pieces i know you guys have read these before that like very easily could have been a book um and i read it last week and was really blown away and wrote hannah an email and she was uh kind enough to come talk to me about the article, but then also she does a lot of criticism. So we talked about balancing criticism and reporting, and she's also reported a lot on Ethiopia. So we talked about that too. I think people are probably aware at this point, but uh, I should uh, note that we are a part of the Vox podcast network who produces this show now. Thanks to Vox. And now here's Max with Hannah Georges. How's it going? Oh, it's going good. This is um, the first in-person interview I have done for the Longform Podcast in, I believe, a year and a half. Oh, shit. I feel special. You should feel special. <laughs> I mean, you should feel that special, but I am, I'm just very excited to be uh, here with you and like literally here with you. Yes. Thank you for getting me also out of my home. <laughs> very much appreciated. I feel like people are just going to have to sit with us because this is going to be a little awkward at times. We're in person. Looking at one another it's, in the face. I know. There's like <laughs> there's eye contact happening. Like uh, It's a Weird. strange experience, <laughs> but I think we should just go with it. Uh, because I'm so excited to talk to you. You wrote this cover story for The Atlantic. I read it on Tuesday. I wrote you an email right afterwards. <laughs> I was totally blown away by the piece, and I've been reading your stuff for a long time, and it felt to me like a, like a maybe like a culmination of a bunch of work that you have been doing for a while. Does that, does that feel right? Am I am I off on that? No, no, that, that feels right, and thank you. Um, yeah, it, a lot of different things came together in this piece for me. Um, and so what we did with the pieces essentially trace <laughs> like 50 years worth of black TV history, um, kind of going back to 
Julia, the show led by Diane Carroll, is probably the earliest real touch point. And then kind of all the way through Sanford and Son, we get to the Cosby show and the, the 90s shows that kind of came from that. All the sitcoms like A Different World, Living Single, Sister, Sister. Uh, and then jump sort of a little bit to Shonda Rhimes and to the, to the present day. And that was an adventure to distill. <laughs> Well, it was an adventure to report, but it was a real adventure to distill into like 9,000 words. Yeah, well, I mean, it felt like one of those pieces that was like, um, this could have been a book. Oh, yeah. I I thought that multiple times, and I think I told, um, I'm pretty sure I told my editors, guys, I feel like this could be a book. I'm not saying it's a book I want to write. Actually, I would love to read it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, and at that point, it was just too far into the thing. I was like, no, we got it. We got to find a way to make all of this work. (laughs) Well, unfortunately, I think you were... The obvious and perfect person to write that oh, book. I don't think you. I don't think it can get farmed out to somebody else. But help me understand how you decided on the focus of the piece, which is really not on the stars of these shows, and instead is on the writers' rooms themselves, the like people behind the scenes. Because you had to pick a focus somewhere right. for this thing; otherwise, it really would have been a book. <laughs> right? Why go behind the scenes? Well, a couple different reasons. I think that. In general, when we talk about representation, we talk about what we see on our screens, so, mm-hmm. right? We're talking about actors. We're talking about who, you know, are the lead characters, who, what are the storylines that they're getting. And I'm, I'm always interested in that. But I'm really, really interested in power. <laughs> not for myself, not to acquire, but, like, how, how it operates. Um, and, and process, right? Like, how the sausage gets made. All of that stuff is, is very interesting to me. And I had been thinking about that in some form for a long time, but especially since I did an oral history of Living Single in 2018 um, and heard from Yvette Lee Bowser, who's the creator of that show, about her experience getting the show onto the air and how in some ways um, it was a bit of a fluke, right? Like that there are so many little things that could have gone slightly differently Mm -hmm. that would have led to us either not getting the show at all or getting a different, a completely different version of it, right? That the character I most identified with almost didn't exist. (laughs) That's the lawyer from next door. Oh, oh yeah, Maxine Shaw, attorney at law. <laughs> why was Max? Why is Maxine Shaw your person on that show? Um, also, an inspiration for Jasmine Hughes um, at the New York Times. We just, you know, there's a whole like uh, generation of young women <laughs> who saw Maxine Shaw and were just like, she's cool. <laughs> you know, <laughs> she has it together, right? Like that's a powerful lady. <laughs> Even though um, she's always like mooching off their food. Oh, yes, yeah, but I, I mean, I, I love uh, the interplay of those two things, right? I love that she's like this badass lawyer who's like always like fighting for women's rights and like you know like has her like natural hair and is like beautiful and stylish and put together. And also, like, every other scene, we, like, see her on the couch, like, eating somebody else's chips. It's, just, it's great. <laughs> so, but, um, you know, Living Single was my jam. Uh, and the idea that this character almost didn't exist and that, that it was a fight for her to exist was really interesting to me. Um, and I was curious about what those kinds of decisions were for other shows. Like, how, how do those quick conversations or, you know, those kinds of struggles actually add up to form the entire TV landscape that we see? One thing that I don't know that I would have been able to articulate before I read it was that there was this moment in the 90s in that living single era, which is also like a different world and Moesha and Sister, Sister. There are all these shows. And then they kind of went away. Why did that happen? And how connected was that to what was going on in these writers' rooms? Right. So... 
the biggest thing that happened that affected that was that the WB and UPN merged into the CW. And at that point, when that network was sort of trying to attract a very broad audience base, a very broad advertising base, um, because this is still like network model, broadcast model advertising, right? Um, that the the dedication to all of these black shows and all of these smaller audiences kind of faded away. And what that meant is that as all of these shows started to disappear, the black writers who had been working on them often struggled to get jobs elsewhere because there was, and in some cases still is, this pervasive view that black writers can write for black shows, right? That they can, they understand that, but that they can't write for the like broad or like mass audience shows, which is to say that they can't write white characters. And a couple of the people that I spoke with referred to that window of time, those several years. So I think we're talking like, 2006, 2007 or so, you know, through 2012, honestly, mm. um, 2014 even, as the Dark Ages. Yeah, that, that phrase comes up again and again in the piece. And I mean, what were those writers doing during the Dark Ages? What moves were available to be made? Well, some people just left altogether. Uh, Susan Fales Hill, who I spent a lot of time speaking with, who had been a writing apprentice on The Cosby Show and then lead writer, EP, on A Different World, um, left TV writing altogether. So she was working on a book, like all, all of these different other things. But basically it, it felt like there were not avenues to do the kind of work that she wanted to be doing. Um, and a lot of people... A lot of people said that they either took a break or, you know, kind of tried to cobble together living doing other things or tried to do, you know, film or whatever it might be. And one of the things I would have loved to spend even more time on is kind of tracking down some of the people who left and stayed out of the industry, right, who left during that period of time and didn't make their way back. What's in this negative space? Right. Like what are the careers and shows that we just didn't get because of that period? And. It reminds me in a lot of ways of what happens when so many people leave journalism. You know, there there have been all of these studies, right, about in particular women of color who leave after a certain window of time because there's just a ceiling that you hit or because layoffs happen or, you know, because there are all these barriers set up. And I'm so curious about what people do, the livings they make, and what we as an industry, as a country, as readers, also miss when they're gone. Right. It's like um, there's just this whole world of work that never got made. Right. There are, it felt to me reading your piece, real parallels between <laughs> this TV world and and the journalism world. And does it feel that way to you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in some ways, that made it easier to report. It made the conversations... Um, there was a shorthand for certain kinds of dynamics that often I would get into in these conversations with writers, right? That, like, they didn't need to tell me that sometimes you could be in a room and it can feel like the person who's brought on to either be the diversity or attract the diversity doesn't have real power. Like, I'm familiar with that dynamic. <laughs> um, so there was definitely there was definitely that. Um, and I also, you know, I, I was cognizant of that parallel. I'm still cognizant of it. And I also didn't want the story to feel... Like, you know, one big subtweet, <laughs> right? Like, I have plenty of things to say about journalism, and I say them. You know, I wasn't kind of trying to backdoor a critique um, of the media into a story about TV. But they are they are very related. There's this phrase that comes up early in the piece, negotiated authenticity, which, since I read it, has been rattling around in my head. Can you, maybe just before I ask you about it, can you sort of explain that idea and, and how it came up? 
Yeah. Um, one of the things that felt super closely tied uh, is a phrase that Felicia D. Henderson, who was a writer on Family Matters and The Fresh Prince, uh, and then went on to create Soul Food, that she described to me, which is this idea of negotiated authenticity, sort of the idea that a black writer or black writers would be brought on to kind of rubber stamp a show's like real blackness, right? That they're the litmus test for whether a storyline or a character or what have you is like the way that black people really do things. Yeah, I mean, the phrase in there is like, does that sound right? Right. <laughs> I remember she said that. And I was like, ah, no. <laughs> I've been there. Um, and in some ways, you want to have a person like that in the room or at least one or two or something just so that the work doesn't feel completely off base. And also, oftentimes, being that person is incredibly demoralizing and exhausting and also really limiting power-wise. You can only sort of object up until the point where you really ruffle feathers and then it's like, calm down. We just brought you here to, to make sure that everything's good. We didn't bring you here to sort of have a very explicit say in what's going on. Right. We were looking for a yes. Correct. Right. Or like a yes, but make this tiny, tiny, tiny cosmetic tweak. Right. Not like upend what's going on. The storyline is wrong. I realize this is a very general and also very naive question. <laughs> But how does that show up in journalism, in your experience? <laughs> oh, boy. Um, I think one way that can show up is quite similar. It's having a draft of, say, a big story that maybe a white writer has worked on that's about black subjects or something kind of tangentially related to black people. Having a story like that go to multiple black people on staff for a read and then not really incorporating their critiques if those critiques are beyond sort of like, well, let's change this one word or let's change this sentence or have we thought about citing this person here, right? That like if there are serious kind of structural or tonal or you know, journalistic uh, critiques that we that we have that sometimes those are not considered thoroughly, even though obviously the work of doing this editing, doing this um, sometimes heavy lift of, of editing um, is quite taxing, like not not just emotionally, sure, but also just like we have other work to be doing. And so that that can feel demoralizing and is certainly a position that I've been in and friends have been in before. Other work to be doing, but also that's not the work. Right, 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 exactly. And I feel like that's a point you make really clearly in the piece is that it's what's lost is not just this version of the rubber stamping, but that that takes time away from just being able to do the work that someone is there to do. Right, right. It's like I would much rather be thinking about what the next story I'm going to be working on is, right, and like not necessarily thinking about, you know, how to best phrase my critique of this thing so that it's accepted by the editors who are working on it and that they relate in a way that's accepted to the white writer, right? All of these levels of, like, contorting thoughts and critique that may or may not be taken are, again, like, sort of demoralizing on their own, but really distract from, like, creative work. Uh, and that's something that also applies in TV, certainly, because it is, it's creative work, right? It's work that requires you to be not just working hard, but also present in a way that can sometimes be thrown off by this. Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. 
If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly. The voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Calling all female runners. It's time to lace up and join Team Milk. Since the 2022 New York City Marathon, Team Milk has sponsored female marathon runners nationwide, providing support and shining a spotlight on their unique stories, perseverance, and drive to go the distance. Why milk? Dairy milk is an excellent nutritional ad for both marathon training and recovery. Milk contains 13 essential nutrients, including high-quality protein, making it a crucial component of a training diet. Plus, it's one of the best beverages for hydration, even better than water. The same electrolytes that are added to many of your favorite sports drinks are found naturally in milk. And in 2024, Team Milk is taking the next step to empower female runners by launching the only women's marathon in the U.S. designed for and by women. Built to be accessible, empowering, and community building, the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. So you had done this oral history of living single. You had started to talk to people about these ideas and particularly what was going on behind the scenes what was the moment where you were like i'm gonna write my nine thousand word thing that could also be a book like was there was there was there an impetus to do this story now i don't think i ever thought i'm gonna make this nine thousand words and it could be a book (laughs) (laughs) i think we sort of fell into that one (laughs) um but the point at which this came together as a story as something that was going to be sort of deeply reported uh was very much i think late last summer maybe early in the fall in conversations with my with my editors, in part because a bunch of us were noticing after, you know, the summer of reckoning, uh, all of these not just public statements about Black Lives Matter from every company in the world, it seemed, uh, but <laughs> all of these streaming sites and just various entertainment hubs having like a Black Lives Matter stories collection or like a Black Voices page or these landing pages where they were trying to really show off that they care about Black stories. Um, And I was curious about what that looked like behind the scenes, right? Like how did all of these shows come to be? And also like there's 
it's a lot of shows in this one page and also like what percentage of your total catalog is this landing page? And so I was curious about the the power dynamics inherent in that and just remember feeling very strange and sort of like Twilight Zone-y about how how suddenly there was this real push to assert and like constantly remind people of networks or streamers or cable channels belief in black voices. Did it feel like bullshit? A little bit. <laughs> kind of. I mean, I yeah, um, it, it did. And I mean, there there have been some very interesting studies in the, you know, in the time since then about like corporate giving and all of the companies that pledged you know, the money that they were going to give to social justice organizations and what's happened with that money. It's and like the vast majority was like in the form of loans and yep, investments. Yep. Things that they could stand to profit off of. Yes. Uh, not great. Um, and I had a feeling back then that something like that was going to pan out in TV. But I was curious about whether these networks, whether the streamers that were really rushing to remind us how much they care about black stories, what their commitment or lack thereof had been in the past. What was it like to go from critiquing this work to reporting on how it was created? Like, I mean, obviously that living single oral history is a combination of kind of criticism and reporting, but so much of your work over the years has been relatively straightforward criticism, like responding to work that's out in the world. What was it like to to shift to reporting on it? it? It wasn't so much of like a technical or formal challenge as it was just mental, right? Like I was very nervous that people whose work I had critiqued in the past wouldn't want to talk to me. That didn't even end up panning out really, but I was very, I was anxious about it going in and I was anxious about it going, you know, sending out press requests. That ended up being okay. Um, but in the actual writing of it, I found myself almost overcorrecting a little bit. I felt like I wanted to make it clear that I was tracing a history and a formally reported story. So like, I don't need to tell you what I thought about the Cosby show. I'm just telling you what it was and what was going on and like how people experienced it. Uh, and so my my editor, Colin Murphy, um, who <laughs> bust him, uh, at various points was like, you know, you can tell people, like you could add a little more of your voice here. And I was like, okay, I guess. <laughs> Um, so that was that was a bit of a journey, but the actual, the reporting was was fun and built off of some of that criticism. And and I do in general, even when I'm working on criticism, try to make sure that I'm situating it within the landscape that it exists, within like kind of its artistic and sort of social history. And so the instincts around the reporting were also pretty similar. It was mostly just like that the anxiety was very different. <laughs> anxiety constant, just constant, a, just a different different formation. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Was anyone reluctant to talk to you for it? Ooh. Um, I mean, there are definitely people who, like, didn't answer my emails. And some of that is just, like, people being busy and having other stuff. And me, first of all, when I was reporting this, not knowing that it was going to be the cover. Um, so I couldn't tell people for the cover story. <laughs> right? And, like, that might have maybe. Um, but there's some risk. If you were still actively working in Hollywood, actively trying to get yeah, in writers' rooms, absolutely. there's some risk talking to you for this story. Yeah, of course. Um, and there were definitely conversations where people shied around mentioning specific names or specific incidents and... Sometimes I didn't want to push that too hard just because, again, like I'm a person in journalism who interacts with some similar dynamics sometimes. And I understand the professional risks inherent in talking about that. Um, this is the portion where I get you to name a bunch of names. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, actually, I, I wrote them all down. <laughs> do, you, do you have that like list of assholes that yeah, I asked you to bring? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Let's, we're going to also, can we put it in the show notes too? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I didn't, I didn't encounter too, too much of that. Um, 
in part because we mostly kept it to bigger picture stuff. I, I have two more questions for you about this piece, and then I want to talk sure. to you about <laughs> other stuff. But it's just, sure. I'm so fascinated about it. What, one is, who did you feel like you were writing it for? I think often the way that I answer that question is, who am I most anxious about? <laughs> <laughs> but but when I say that, what I mean is that I I want the people who I spend a lot of time talking with, the people whose experiences I'm trying to relay in a way that's accessible, in a way that feels like other people can understand what's going on. I want those people to feel like I did a good job of that, right? That I did it like accurately and fairly. I don't necessarily want them to feel like I painted them in a good or like positive light. That's a slightly different thing. Well, how does it? How does that fit with Issa Rae tweeting tattoo this article okay. on my back, <laughs> which is one of the most incredible responses to an article I think I've ever seen. I, I okay. At that point, I had logged off of Twitter for the day. Highly recommend. I think I tweeted this at like nine or something, and I logged off by like ten. I was like, I can't do this. Twitter makes me incredibly anxious. I, you know, if anything big happens here, a friend will let me know. Is that like standard practice for you? Not. Always. Sometimes I'll log out like after a couple hours or whatever. But with this, I was just like, this is a big thing that's out into the world. And I know that there's probably nothing positive to come of me sitting here and like looking at the notifications tab. It's just not it's not good for anybody. Um, so I was made aware of that because multiple people like, sent me the screenshot. Yeah, that's some shit. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, it was it was very flattering. It was that's kind of exactly what you want to hear in a very vivid way. <laughs> um, and, you know, I uh, I thought it was especially funny because I've been thinking for quite a long time about getting a back tattoo. <laughs> You're going to get a back tattoo of one of your own articles. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like, how do we do 9,000? Okay, maybe we cut it down to 2,000. No. So it was it was very, very humbling, very flattering. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I just wanted I wanted people to feel like I had captured their experiences in a way that felt true to that. Um so that's that's one big bucket of things. Um, and then I wanted people who aren't intimately familiar with these shows to feel like they got something from this that wasn't just a recounting of how they're, you know, how these shows that someone else might care about came to be. And then sort of the third bucket of thing that I wanted it to do is that I wanted somebody who'd known these shows or grown up watching them or was at least sort of had a cursory, you know, familiarity with them to feel like there was information that they were getting that was new or that was, you know, that shed light on something that they might not have known before or that they, you know, like left or thought that something was interesting or that they, there was still something in it for them too. Uh, and that was a lot of different things to kind of juggle. Yeah, that it, that feels like a really tricky Venn diagram, like like the overlapping circles between like incredibly meaningful for Issa Rae. <laughs> okay, that wasn't the thing that I was explicitly writing toward. But... <laughs> I, I understand, but like you were saying that the people you had talked to, you wanted it to be representative and meaningful to them and their experience. Yeah. For people who have watched those shows but didn't have a whole lot of sense of what was happening behind the scenes, you wanted it to be meaningful so they could learn something new. But then also, it's going on the cover of The Atlantic, right. and I, I don't know, but I'm making some assumptions about... I don't know what the percentage of Atlantic readers who are also like sister, sister, super fans, but it might not be super high. (laughs) And that feels hard, like a hard needle to thread between those three things. How much are you holding those three ideas while you're putting the thing together? All the time. (laughs) Um, I mean, I I thought about it all the time. And, you know, that's part of what was really great about working with Cullen on this is that I think he was really helpful in helping me see the whole often um, because I would find myself um, either getting a little bit anxious about the, you know, the people who know that these shows part 
or um, like I wasn't doing enough explanation for people who didn't know them. Um, and the, the part about people's experiences being reflected, I think, was at once the most anxiety-inducing for me because we're also talking about people who are you know, quite opinionated and quite online and quite if they had issues, we're probably going to make them public, right? Um, so there's that. But I was at once most anxious about that, I think, um, and also most comfortable knowing that, like, I had had a lot of conversations and that there were some really recurring patterns and that this stuff wasn't, you know, nobody's experience was really, like, a fluke or a super outlier or there were things that happened that, like, didn't exactly fit into this pattern, but that I could point that out and that it would be okay. Yeah, I mean, there's just, like, tactical parts of it, too, which is just, like, how much context do I have to give about Moesha here? Literally, right? And, like, how much do I need to explain about a different world, right? How much do we need to, do we need an explanation of what HBCU is, <laughs> Right. Down to stuff like that, uh, which is something that, like, I wouldn't think to do. And also, like, if I'm taking a step back and realizing this is in print, this is the cover story, maybe. Maybe we do a quick gloss. I don't know. Um, so there's a, a lot of that. Part of the reason I asked that question is because I've, I've seen that dynamic play out in some of the writing and reporting you have done about Ethiopia, too, which is there are these moments, like you did this piece, I think it was in 2016, about a guy who had come in second in the yeah. marathon of mm-hmm. the Olympics and had used that opportunity to raise awareness and, and protest political dynamics in Ethiopia. Yeah. And there's this section, like a third of the way into the piece, that's basically like, okay, here's Ethiopia. Like, <laughs> this is where it is. <laughs> this is like a very basic breakdown of mm-hmm. who lives there, who's in power, how that happened. Like, it's like, here's like... 500, maybe 700 words that's like, here's everything you actually need to know about Ethiopia. You've written a lot about that country and and I imagine also are trying to balance a lot of different audiences in those pieces. Like, what has that experience been like for you? Well, chief among those audiences is my mother. (laughs) 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 Who who does not like what I write about Ethiopia. Um, she doesn't? No, no. Uh, well, when I write about, like, political dynamics in Ethiopia, if I'm going to write about, like, Ethiopian food, it's a little less, you know, fraught for her. But I understand it. My mom came here in 81 during the Marxist regime that had overthrown the emperor, Haile Selassie, you know, during the period of time known as the Red Terror, right? Like, not an easy period of time in the country's history, not a period of time in the country's history that was particularly open to the press, not that our current moment is either, but I understand that there there are some real fears and anxieties that she has about me doing this reporting, not just because of what it might mean for me, but for our family who's still there. Um, and so, you know, I sort of always try to think about that, or I always have that in the back of my head, even when I believe really strongly in something. Um, and that came up really recently in April. I published a piece about the current uh, political landscape and some of the the chaos at home. And I knew that she wasn't going to want me to write that piece. And I knew that I had to kind of ease her into the idea of it. Um, And, you know, we we had those conversations that she was cautious and all of these things. Um, But there got there got to be a point with that story where I think it was January. So about two and a half months into the current conflict where I sort of looked around and realized that I'm one of like very, very few 
Ethiopian American staff writers at a like national publication. And I was like, well, regardless of whether or not I want to do this thing, and it, you know, there are certainly easier and like more fun ways to spend my time, it does feel like a bit of a responsibility. So at that point, I was like, okay, I should start working on this, start figuring it out. Um, but working on those kinds of stories is tough because it's setting myself up for like knowing that no matter how I do this, there's going to be some big demographic of people that is upset with me. They're just, like, just by virtue of what the thing is. Right, even if that demographic is a demographic of one. Yep, yep. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, you know, often by the time something publishes, she'll come around. Like, she she was very nice about it when it actually did uh, publish. And, you know, I think so. it helped that, like, some of her friends had sent it to her and been like, we liked this. <laughs> um, but... No, but it, it just because the the country and its diaspora and the region is just so fragmented politically, ethnically, and because there is so little in depth reporting about it in international and Western press, it just means that you are often really set up to fail. Is it exactly the right word? But it's not far from the right word. What do you mean by that? Well, if you'll if you'll notice, if you try to read like a Reuters or like an AP report about a specific battle or something that happened in Tigray, for example, like the northernmost region where a lot of this conflict has been happening. Um, There's always that line, like, you know, halfway through or something where it'll say, like, you know, these claims were are not independently verified by Reuters because, like, the communication lines are down. There's always something like that, right? There's always, like, there's a comms blackout, so, like, we couldn't quite, but this is what Amnesty International says. Um, and so just structurally and, like, at the technical and, like, reporting level, it's just really hard to get information when people don't have access to their phone lines or... I mean, when... it's an incredibly hostile place to journalists. Yes, yes. Uh, and there's also just so much, like, misinformation floating around, like, among, especially within the diaspora because people are removed from their family members, but finding out bits and pieces of things from, like, their community centers or, like, WhatsApp or Facebook, all these places where all this stuff kind of thrives. Um, getting through to people is hard even when you sort of have a set time that you're going to talk like their phone lines might be down or they might be ignoring you or they might be in jail right like there's all of these different like really incredibly difficult things um just at the basic reporting level i gotta say i'm surprised that your mother is a challenge in that thing i just i i just assumed reading it and like oh no i mean i do it anyway <laughs> no, no no i know I, I i just assumed before we talked that it would be a thing that you were doing in part because it made your parents proud, you know? Yeah, it, it does. I mean, I think I think for her it's a mix of that. I think, it, you know, when we've talked about it, it's at once something that does make her proud and that she is certainly proud of, like, the instinct that I have to want to do it, that, you know, the, the fact that it is important to me is something that makes her proud and also that sort of at, at a story-by-story level because she has seen some of the ways that government suppression or that like even like interpersonal like strife or hostility has played out because of certain things that have been written or because of certain things that people have believed about one another that she's nervous for like my safety for Mm. our safety for you know um yeah for all of those dynamics that are very much about like me the person as opposed to me the reporter which I appreciate because it helps as much as it is a source of anxiety it also helps keep me grounded She's your mom. She's like, think, she's thinking about risk. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I understand it. And she also, I mean, she's more inclined toward safety and safety measures than I am just dispositionally. 
And also, it's true that, like, she grew up there and I didn't, right? That there are some things where, like, I have to feel comfortable trusting her on something because, like, she does actually know it better. And, like, yes, I'm reporting things out. And, yes, I'm having tons of conversations with people. And also, like, I wasn't there in, you know, 74 or 75 when she had to, like, duck in the backseat of her dad's car, right? Like, I just wasn't – I don't have that set of knowledge. Um, Or that, like – visceral memory yeah, and right? trauma. That sort of yeah. like embodied understanding of what it could mean and look like. Um, and so, you know, sometimes I have to pull back my like reporter hubris a little bit and just let my mom have it. Last week, Kanye West accused one of the biggest Twitch streamers of being an industry plant. It's an idea that comes up so often on platforms like TikTok and elsewhere. You see people who have blown up seemingly overnight. And the question is, who's behind them, right? That's what everyone wants to know. Tipping the scales and pulling the lever to make them seemingly the next it thing on the internet. This week on Power User, is it even possible to create an industry plant on the internet? And if so, how? What do you think that you're like trying to figure out about the place or or is there some sort of like longer term thing that you're trying to kind of grapple with or wrap your hands around? Yeah, I mean, I think I am um, like a lot of first gen kids, a very like big diaspora cliche. (laughs) But like, you know, I'm trying to figure out what people's relationship to home is, what mine is, what our families is. Um, But beyond kind of the... um, like bad diaspora poetry side of things, <laughs> <laughs> the, like mangoes and oceans. Um, <laughs> beyond that, um, I am really, really curious about how a country's history informs the way that people interact with one another in the day to day. And with Ethiopia in particular, because there is so much national mythology around the idea of this like never colonized, this like African bastion of resistance, this, I mean, we have like, it is hard to contend often with the way that people prioritize the idea of Ethiopia and its historic meaning and its significance and symbolism within the diaspora, like the broader diaspora, um, with how they respond to the experiences of Ethiopian people. Hmm. Um, and that tension I'm really interested in, both in the ways that it shows up outside of the country and the ways that it shows up inside the country like people are very 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 patriotic very nationalistic and i'm always curious about where that comes from and how people grapple with that even when it seems like the nation um is itself a hostile entity or like is an entity that leaves out so many people or that can only exist because it extinguishes certain kinds of like indigenous practices or like all of that stuff operates there in a way that brings in like language religion culture, all of these things that don't always get brought into stories about, like, Ethiopia, (laughs) this country (laughs) that, like, is, you know, a U.S. ally in the Horde um, that is, like, an ancient republic where everybody's Christian. and Like, there's so many myths about the country that I do find it, like, intellectually satisfying to get through some of that. Is that a tension for you, too? Oh, yeah. I mean, I grew up believing and, like, hearing those myths because I grew up in a very, like 
Christian household in Southern California where most of the Ethiopian people I interacted with were were also Christian, often from pretty specific parts of the country. Um, and so you, you know, I got older and met people from other parts of the country, spent a lot more time with Eritrean people, with Somali people, and just kind of learning about Ethiopia, not just as potentially not colonized, but also as like a, an agent of empire itself mm-hmm. was just like very, uh, very jarring. And then also um, kind of instilled in me a sense of responsibility to start with the little, little bits of power <laughs> influence that I might have within our community, kind of start teasing that out and start having conversations with people about the fact that like we can have pride in this place and also like maybe that pride doesn't need to be contingent upon this vision of ourselves as like the sole African victors or what have you. Aside from your mom, like how much do you think about the response to this reporting that you're doing? Ooh, um, a lot. With this most recent piece, I like when I tweeted it for the first time, I sent my replies to be like only people I follow. Um, because, like, you see that there is an, a tremendously vitriolic response if you have from really sort of any side um, and that there are, like, actually, like, active digital campaigns to, like, suppress people and harass people, especially women. Um, so I, I remain very aware of that. And I didn't get too too much of it, I think, in part because I did that and also because I asked, like, the Atlantic social team to not, you know, include my Twitter name, like, when they when they posted it so that that wasn't coming in via their accounts. But seeing the response to other people's writing can be really, really, really stressful. It's interesting to to hear you say that because I listened to this interview you did um, like very, very, very early in the run (laughs) of um, another round. Oh, my God. (laughs) uh, From like 2015. Yeah. And a lot of the interview is about your Tumblr. Oh, I was hoping we would again. (laughs) I don't. Yeah. I, I I won't ask you about. I won't ask you about your Tumblr, <laughs> which is an incredibly successful Tumblr, which we should talk about. But I won't. I won't ask you about it. But the 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 thing that I actually was struck by in that conversation was how much you were thinking then about sort of not wanting things to go viral because of what level of response it was going to get. Oh yeah, for you personally. Yikes. And that would have been like six years ago, huh? Yeah. So it's interesting that like six years later, the way that manifests is like, please don't put my handle in the tweet. <laughs> right. Right. Um, and I, I just being online and getting attention online as a black woman is frequently unpleasant. Um, and I, I mean, I thought about that with the cover story that like, thankfully to my understanding, it has not reached sort of racist corners of the internet yet, like knock on wood. Um, but that there are ways that all sorts of benign things can reach corners where people are just going to dislike you because of who you are or like not understand that that's why they're reacting from such an intense place. Um, but I think about that a lot and it has influenced the times when like I've deactivated Twitter for a couple months at a time or just sort of taken a break uh, from being online, from being present. It's the part of being forward facing, public facing, what have you, is sort of the, the part of the job I like the least. It's the hardest thing for me. But does it feel like you can't do the job without doing that? Sometimes. I mean, I have done it before, right? Like, I've, I've deactivated. I've taken time away. Um, I think I am more, much more able to do it now as a staff writer than I, than I would be if I were freelancing still. Um, 
And that's, you know, a, a mental and emotional and psychological tax that I think we often don't talk about enough when we're talking about some of the labor stuff within our industry. What do you mean? I think that there is a bit more freedom that people who have salaried jobs at media publications have to step away from the grind and the constant intense tax of visibility. Like there, there's more freedom there than if you are freelancing and somewhat dependent on that for your, you know, for the next thing that you pitch or for like editors to notice you or there, there's... Which just, was a spot that you were in for a long yeah, time. Yeah, but I was, I was lucky in that when I was doing that, I was working full time um, at a foundation at the time. So I didn't leave school thinking that I was going to end up in journalism and here I am. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I wasn't making a ton of money in nonprofit land, of course, uh, but I knew that I could pay my rent. And it put me in the position to not have to only take gigs because I needed the money for that. And I, I just am really, really cognizant that, like, not everybody has that luxury. And some, some of the ways that not having that luxury shows up is by having to be more online, which is to say more at risk of harassment. And there's, there's just no way, at least that I can see, if you're a young, aspiring journalist in 2021 who's trying to make it at least to start as a freelancer to not be very online. I like does that seem off to you? Is there a way to do it that I'm not seeing? I think unless you have existing connections with editors, with institutions, with potential like alumni networks, then yeah, it would be really difficult. Yeah. It's bad. <laughs> a moment of silence for online. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, yeah, I don't even know what to say. It's just like, yeah, it, it, uh... it's it's weird. People are really weird. Like people have come up to my sister, my little sister, and been like, oh, I recognize you from Hannah's Instagram. I hate that. I hate that so much. Right. That like some of some of the protectiveness is like, yes, me being like anxious and like, don't look at me. And like you know, some of it is that sure. And also some of it is that like, you know, I some write things that sometimes for some reason make people mad and also I have family members who are visible on my things um, and that makes me nervous. Yeah. But it's also like, um, you know, your mom gets nervous about your reporting on Ethiopia. Right. You, you get, get nervous, nervous about putting your sister on your Instagram. Right, right. Oh, well, it's all like mother, like daughter. <laughs> <laughs> all right. We need to stop talking about the internet or I'm just going to feel worse. Yes, yeah. great. I have some career questions for you right. before I let you go. Right. You have moved around a fair amount. You were at The Guardian. Yeah. I was at, well, so I was at The Guardian while I was still working in philanthropy. Um, like, I was a columnist on the side. I wasn't on staff there. That seems like a lot of work. It was. But I was, like, 23, 24. It was fine. I <laughs> you, had energy. You were, you were a person with energy. <laughs> I would, like, go to the little coffee shop by my place, like, you know, after work and be like, I'm going to file this draft. And was your ambition then to be a journalist? No, I didn't know. I just liked writing. It was, you know, I liked, um, I don't know that I had a specific career ambition that I don't think at any point in my career I have known what the thing I want to do next is, or I have known to want the job that I would end up having next. Hmm. Is that changing or is that so? I think, I mean, now that I've been in it for like several years, that that's changed a bit, but it sort of does come from me leaving college and not thinking that I was going to be a journalist. It wasn't something that I thought about as like a career. Path. When did that change? 
I think probably when I was toward the tail end of my time at BuzzFeed, I figured, oh dear, they've got me. <laughs> <laughs> they've got me in this thing. Because that was my that was my first uh, full-time job in media. And I remember thinking, I, I remember telling my mom, actually, like, all right, I'm going to go try this thing. I'm 24. If it's a terrible idea, I don't have kids. You know, like, I don't have that much responsibility right now. If it's a terrible idea, we could probably figure it out. Like, right. it won't be the end of the world. And how did that moment where you were like, oh, they've got me, What? how did that manifest? Was it like oh, this is clearly what I want to be doing? Or was it like, well, now I'm in too deep? Um, no, unfortunately, it was the clearly this is what I want to be doing thing. Um, I think I think it was actually when I was working on the face of the Lessa story about the, about the marathoner. Um, there was a moment where I think I remember being really, really tired because I was transcribing interviews that I had done in Amharic, which is technically my first language, but which I don't speak certainly with like, I don't speak as well as I speak English, um, and certainly I don't interview in it as well as I interview in English. So I was transcribing those calls, which were, like, awkward, and Faisa's second language is also Amharic. He speaks Afan Oromo as his first. Um, and I was like, this is awkward and just, like, technically difficult. And also, like, I really love this. Like, there, I think I was, like, up late, like, transcribing, and I think I called my mom because, you know, Amharic's my first language, but there are words I just didn't learn as a five-year-old, right? Like a three-year-old, whatever. So I remember calling her, like, hey, mom, like, what's Ambagannan? She was like, oh, dictatorship. And I was like, ah, yes, yes. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> um, but I was just like, this is, this is great. Uh, and it's kind of wild to me that, like, I am getting to learn this and to do this and to feel tired, sure, but, like, for work. Like, I am actually getting paid for this. This isn't the thing that I'm doing as like a passion project on the side. Right. It wasn't like, it didn't totally feel like a job, even though it was a job. Right. Right. Which is a decent sign that you have found something that you like exactly, doing. Exactly. So why take the job at The Ringer, which you were the special projects editor? I was special projects editor. Which is, which is very different than person who will be transcribing <laughs> late at night. Why, yes. why did you make that shift? Well, there was a lot of work that I was doing at BuzzFeed that wasn't just writing, right? That was, we had, um, kind of like a Slack channel, working group of people who were doing um, or coming up with ideas or editing things for the the content that we were doing primarily for like audiences of color, for black audiences. Um, and so I remember doing like a lot in that Slack and helping people and kind of like side reading stuff and like ghost reading things for friends. And like, you know, I was doing kind of a lot of background editing both at work and just because I have friends who are writers. Um, and I thought, you know, like, I like doing this a lot. I like thinking about how this industry can elevate, uh, like, the voices and ideas of people that it doesn't necessarily always pay attention to. Maybe I could take a crack at doing that for my day-to-day work. And so, yeah, I, like, helped think of what project ideas we could do um, at The Ringer, which was interesting because The Ringer is so heavily known for sports stuff. And so doing really culture-oriented things was sometimes difficult because the audience wasn't always into that. It was sort of, like... This is fine, but where's my like Ringer NBA? <laughs> Which like fine, I get it. Um, but I did I did really really enjoy working with uh, Justin Charity and Micah Peters, who I edited pretty regularly when I was there. So why'd you leave? Because I love thinking of the big picture stuff. Uh, I love working actually with writers and helping writers get something to the stage that feels the best for them. Like I find that really rewarding. And I also do not enjoy like day-to-day content management, planning, um, <laughs> management uh, in general. Um, I'm a bit of like a softie in mind. <laughs> I don't like enforcing things with people. Mm-hmm. So it's partly that. And also just that like the sort of way that I ended up at The Atlantic is that 
my understanding is that various people have been kind of like floating my name in the background, but how it sort of panned out logistically is that the Atlantic was at the same WeWork as the Ringer back in, you know, this would have been 2017, 2018. And I just made friends with John Swansburg, who's an editor, on the mag side because we would always be in, like, the mail line together or something. Uh, we just, like, got coffee one day and we're chatting and blah, blah, blah. So for people listening, the the way that you <laughs> find a new gig is just, like, getting the right we work. So Jeff says, Jeff, our editor will frequently say, like, joke that they just found me wandering the halls of the we work, And I'm like, you guys have to stop telling this story. I mean, it's a joke, but also it's part of what's so <laughs> fucked about this time that yes, we're living in right now absolutely. is those kinds of things you don't get that. can't happen. Right. And that wasn't even me and Swansburg interacting wasn't even a like, you seem interesting, we should work with you type thing. It was like, we got coffee. I was like, um, I'm happy to send you a list of writers of color because like, obviously the Atlantic could do more of that. <laughs> and he was like, okay, cool. Uh, and I sent him that list. I guess he forwarded it to Jeff, who was like, oh, this is cool. Also, what's her deal? Uh, but... None of that really would have happened in that clear of a way if it hadn't been for that, right? Um, And maybe I still would have ended up here. Who knows? But that was certainly one amusing way of doing it. (laughs) Do you have a sense now of what kind of work you want to be doing going forward? Some of it is just more feature writing stuff. I really, really enjoy reporting. Really, really enjoy it. I mean, the... The most fun I've had at work is when, you know, I was doing the early reporting for this story and just spent my days calling people up and, like, talking with them about stuff that they were doing in the 90s. Like, I really, really enjoyed that. And not not every and not every story is going to have that tenor. Um, and it, certainly there were parts of this that were difficult and not just, like, you know, talking about sister, sister and the, the twins. Um, <laughs> but but I would, I would certainly want to do more of that, including in ways that bring in historical stuff. Uh, I want to play around a little bit more with fiction um, and specifically like romance stuff, which is like, uh, I love. <laughs> and I think I've like read it for so long and loved it for so long and talked with romance novelists and written about rom-coms and like have almost like um, um, a meet-cute premise generator in my brain. Like, <laughs> I'll, like I'll be walking through the street and I think New York is just great for that, right? But I'll like see people interact in a certain way and I'm like, oh my God, what if it starts there? And uh, I also really would love to do um, the topic or like issue or set of things that I found myself really struggling to approach in journalism or in nonfiction has been um, just like the Mediterranean migrant routes mm. coming from like Ethiopia, but especially like Eritrea, Sudan, um, through Libya, just like it's a really treacherous journey. And I've like had some conversations with people who've done it before. But like I find that I really struggle with that gravity in nonfiction. And I wonder if there's a way of rendering that somehow in fiction that could be better or could be more like revelatory or helpful or like more of an ethical way of handling people's stories. Oh, that's so interesting. I don't I don't think I've ever heard someone bring ethics into that kind of idea before. Yeah, some of it is just, you know, it's just my mom in the back of my head, right? <laughs> We're like a phantom guest today. Um, <laughs> I can call her after this. I, just I think, do some fact I think it's best that we not. <laughs> um, no, I, the, the reason that I, that I say that is that um, there are things about traumatic migration stories in particular that oftentimes people don't necessarily want associated with their names or want um, put out into the world with their faces or with things that can be easily tied to them or their families or for all sorts of reasons. And um, I wonder if 
giving people the freedom to talk through what they want to talk through, to relay some of that, and to also know that it's not going to be connected to them in a way that's beyond, like, we'll change your name, um, but in a way that's a little, a little different, um, could be more, like, collaborative, more ethical. I don't know. I, it's something I'm thinking through. All right. Well, when you write that thing, you got to come back on. We'll, <laughs> we'll talk see. about it. We'll see you in 2045. <laughs> Hannah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor this week was Seth Kelly. Thanks to him. Thanks to Vox, of which we are now a part. And thanks to our friends, as always, at MailChimp. But thanks most of all to Hannah for coming in in person and talking to me about her article. If you have not read it yet, go do that right now. We'll see you next week. Support for Longform this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The Listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier.